tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Power athlete, former grid league athlete, now coach, professor of evolutionary neuroscience, Steve Pladek now adds TED Talk speaker to his long list of accolades. Otherwise known as one Professor Booty, Steve was one of the founding hosts of Power Athlete Radio. His passion to battle the bullshit helps spark the original show and is apparent in all of his training and professional endeavors. Steve has always maintained that science provides answers to the complicated and often overlapping matrix of his two loves, evolution and strength training. In this episode, Steve and Tex bridge the gap between that of camaraderie found in sports and the possible neurological implications of group suffering. This phenomenon has always been a component in team environments, but only recently is there science to explain how the suck can improve overall performance, but at what risk? Responsible coaches know how and when to put an athlete on blast, but not enough follow what power athlete refers to as the 3P model. Unpack the details of what drives us to want to win for the collective gain with Professor Booty himself. This is episode 175. What's up, Power Athlete Nation? I got Tex, John, and the former co-host, Steve Platic on the line. That's right, I pronounced it correctly, Platek. And what we're going to be talking about is just brain games, pretty much, whether that's camaraderie, whether that's skill work, and we're just going to kind of tap the doctor for what he does best. So, Steve, you've not been on the show in a long time. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself for any new listeners that we got going on? Uh, sure. Okay. So um, my academic credentials are I have doctorates in evolutionary biology and cognitive neuroscience, and I study the evolution of the brain um, with respect to most things, uh, most prominently to things like attraction. Uh, athletically, I'm pretty fat. Um, uh, the head coach of the uh, Grid League Miami Surge and uh, sort of competitive exerciser and uh, used to play competitive college ice hockey. Welcome back. Yeah, that's great yeah, to be back. It's been a long time. I mean, geez, we were just laughing offline about how the very first podcast, which we've never actually ever put out there, ended in a <laughs> by me because uh, Luke's dumbass never told me we were doing a podcast. And, yeah. then, and then my other favorite one is Luke's like, don't even worry about it. These guys are going to run with it. You, you never even have to be on there. We're going to do it independent of you. And I'm like, oh, so we're going to have a podcast. I don't have to be on there? Oh, that's great. Let's totally do it. And then we got a rope adoped when all of a sudden you went on to bigger and better things, like tenured professor and coach for the grid league. And next thing you know, you're big time. You ain't got time for us anymore. So we're stoked to have you back on. Thank you very much. <laughs> I always have time for my power athlete people. Come on. It's funny. I uh, just got back about two weeks ago from the grid league. The grid league ran their season out in Utah, which was, uh, I knew nothing about Utah, but it was phenomenal place. Good food, good people, great hiking. Not a great season. It was my first season as the head coach. We uh, didn't make the playoffs, but next year we will. And I applied everything that I've learned from you jokers, and uh, they got better. I actually taught two gymnasts how to run simply by teaching him arm swinging. You, I don't know if you've ever watched a gymnast run. I'd never seen a gymnast run. Um, yeah. Basically do the hockey, like side to side. And I thought, oh, and so I had them do sprints because the grid league is all about speed. And these gymnasts were slow. And by the end of it, both the gymnasts came up to me and they were like, I run faster now. And it doesn't hurt when I run. And all I do is focus on swinging my arms. And I was like, that's like uh, the power athlete seminar, what, like minute one? Like it's uh, basics for us. So I, I use that stuff constantly. And we had a really good team. 
And uh, one of the things I just, I'm always on the website reading the articles because it seems like text is one of the most prolific writers in strength and conditioning right now on the web at least. And uh, that article on camaraderie really struck home with me for two reasons. One is because I used a lot of those principles unknowingly to try and build camaraderie on the surge. And uh, it tapped into some ideas that I've been thinking about neuroscientifically, which I, um, I hadn't thought about in that way until I read the article. So um, yeah, I missed you guys too. And uh, that, that first episode, Luke assured us that you were, oh yeah, John knows everything. <laughs> and I, I he's, he's the worst. He, uh, I mean, and, and then the worst is he tries to blame it on the fact that, you know, maybe I took a couple hits in the NFL. Oh yeah, I totally talked to you about this. I'm like, no, you didn't. And then I realized that Luke took as many hits as I did in fucking pre-kindergarten when he was, you know, Pop Warner All-American, and his memory is even more dog shit. So. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the only thing that could have been more frightening-inducing is if you hand-delivered it, like this big 300-pound man knocks on your door and is like, <laughs> exactly. Denny and I called each other soon. We no longer posted the podcast, and we got this message from Wellborn saying, uh, cease and desist, anything using Power Athlete, Anything using CrossFit football, anything using CrossFit, expect messages from our attorney within 24 hours. Uh, sincerely, John Wellborn. Literally, Denny and I had to change our diapers. Um, that's a, but that's a form letter. Uh, I send those out fucking repeatedly, and the only time that I ever have to forward that shit to the attorney and get him on it is when some fucking cock face fucking wants to steal our shit, and uh, uh, <laughs> I can't actually fly and go visit his house. Do you remember uh, the Jay and Silent Bob movie where, like, people are talking shit on the internet and then they go over and they like go to the people's houses. That's really what I want to do. I want to show up at their house and be like, why are you stealing? Wham! And punch them. But unfortunately. Yeah, fucking snoochy boochies. <laughs> yeah, snoochy boochie. <laughs> Those guys are great. You need to get them on the podcast. Oh, uh, dude, that would be great. I, uh, um, you know, it's always interesting when you think about like how, like people always ask like, how do you get, such an amazing collection of people on the podcast because I believe and I'm not tooting my own horn, but uh, for the premier strength conditioning podcast in the world, we've probably had one of the coolest rosters of people ever on uh, you know on any podcast. I mean, I think better than Joe Rogan. Uh, and you know, uh, but how, how do you get them? I mean, you meet cool people, you have cool friends, you bring people on, and you know, people want to talk about what they do. Like you know, the fact that you know, not only is Steve Uber elite head you know, coach for the grid, but also a uh, neuroscientist. So, I mean, you know, look at that brains and brawn. Very eclectic roster we got going on. It's dude. When I go back and I look at it, I think, Jesus, how did a bunch of hacks get this many good people on to talk about the stuff? I mean, so, uh, text, let's dive right in. Like, uh, let me just respond to that, John. Here it is. It's the motto, right? People helping people iron sharpens iron, right? I love it. Well, that, uh, that, that motto actually was stolen from Wedding Crashers. Uh, and the, like, the Bible. It's, <laughs> it's people helping people. It's powerful stuff. And that's really, <laughs> really, really uh, the whole um, model. If you want to watch a movie about power athlete, it would be Wedding Crashers. We're just here to crash the party and have a good time. We, don't, we might not be invited, but we're showing up. Or we're going to be the center of attention. Just a couple of young guys having some fun. That's... We're not that young. <laughs> Uh, all right, all right. Let's uh, let's let's dive into the serious stuff. So, uh, the the camaraderie article. I had this just in the back of my mind, and every time I worked with the team, I would just almost default to these. Like Steve said, it's just a best best practice. It was there, uh, but then I saw a quote by John Wall, a pro 
uh, pro basketball player. And one of his teammates signed a big contract when the NBA went crazy and he called him out publicly. And his quote was, now that you have your money, you go out there and you improve your game. So he called his teammate out. And then um, I saw something on SportsCenter. People were blowing up about it. I'm like, yeah, well, that's the expectation. Like, you just earned $150 million. Earn your paycheck. And so after just a lot of conversation, I was like, well, how do you build that camaraderie, that amount of respect that these two guys can have that conversation in the locker room and not get butthurt about it? Um, so then I look back at a lot of failures that I've seen in, in uh, just my college experience, and one of them was bringing military personnel into training the athletes on a strength coach's time. That always just pissed me off. So I, I just put these things together. But um, just to start this conversation, I, I want to look to you, John. What kind of bullshit have you experienced? And then the, what's the perception of the team when a coach is making them do this stuff? Uh, you know what, like, we always did some interesting team-building stuff. I remember back in Philly, we went and built, like, a um, uh, a, uh, uh, like an amusement, like a, like a park for these kids, and we actually went into, uh, you know, North Philly and built this park, and the hilarious part was it was a total ploy, because, like, one of the worst drug-dealing areas, and, like, where, like, they had all these gang infestations and drug dealing, they, pretty much what they did is they demoed this little parking lot, and they built a park, because you can't, if you sell drugs with gang activity within a certain distance of a park or a school kids, then like they have the ability to go in and go, you know, fuck these guys up. And so we built this park and as we were driving away, they were bringing in the SWAT band to go in and raid this place. And so we thought we were there for this great team building thing. And actually we were there merely as a publicity stunt so they could go in and get some drug dealers out. So I was proud of that one. Um, you know, the, um, when I played in Philly, uh, they actually had a guy, and I reached out to him. I don't know if you saw the email the other day. A guy named Kevin Elko, and Kevin Elko is a motivational speaker and just a really, really sharp dude. Uh, has a really interesting mannerism or just manner about him. Just a very calm deal. And I used to talk to him quite a bit. And ironically, we talked about Kevin Elko on the podcast, and he gave me that little bit of line about be presidential. And then, ironically, somebody listened to the podcast and made a picture of it and put it on Instagram, and I retweeted it the, or reposted it the other day. But I think, um, you know, the teams that come in and they want to do some, you know, stupid team building thing, not really as much value as, you know, really bringing in people like outside consultants like Kevin Elko that can kind of systematically go in and deal with individuals. I thought that was really good. And, uh, you know, for most teams, what really is probably the greatest measure for success and more importantly, bonding is winning. Uh, if you if you're on a winning team, and I, I still joke about this, people are like, you know, winning and losing in the NFL, you you know, you get paid the same. And I'm like, uh, yes, but if you're on a winning team in the NFL, everything is better. You come in, people are smiling, happy. You know, the lunch is better, the field is better, practice is shorter, everything's wonderful. You come out and you know, somebody washed your car on a losing team. You come out and your tires are flat, the, the meals are crappy. <laughs> You know, everybody walks around, it's gray and gloomy, and uh, people get fired, and it's just a bad situation. So, really, in the NFL, uh, all money being the same, you want to be on a winning team because it just makes it a much more enjoyable situation. So, in terms of team building stuff, <coughs> you know, I, I was always surprised where, um, you know, we did some things like this, and it was more, you know, the idea of getting people to bond. And I'm like, you know, people bond in terrible situations. So, I mean, I, I always think, like, uh, when I played on the Dick for Meal teams, um, you know, we bonded 
because the situation was so shitty that we were trying to like, you know, gather strength from each other just to get through the, you know, two, three hour practices. So I think people bond in stressful situations, but, uh, I don't know. Um, you know, I'm kind of interested to hear kind of the, uh, the macro 10,000 foot view and also the micro from, uh, from Steve. I'm sure he's got some really interesting, um, you know, neuroscience and some other things in terms about bonding and creating, you know, bridges and more importantly, how do people kind of come to work in a, in a unified movement? Yeah, for sure. So when I read your article, I, I focused on a couple of things text. One is, uh, my, my stint with the grid league, which was, uh, uh, when you do these exercises, you end up having three types of athletes, right? So you've got the leaders, the unaccountable, and then the quitters. And, and I didn't tolerate quitting. Well, four, four types. So what it, it's the unmentionable, the guy that's the yes or no sirs, and they just go out and they do their job. It's just, yeah. that's not worth talking about. It's what the other, the other guys are. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and I think when you think about the neuroscience of camaraderie, and I've thought about camaraderie a lot because um, having done CrossFit for several years and thinking about that, like bleed together, sweat together, work out with the team together, played team sports my whole life. It's amazing what um, uh, certain teams and certain coaches can bring out from a team, uh, a team of basically scrubs. My college hockey team at Rutgers, we were a bunch of scrubs and we ended up not doing very well. But like John said, it was a great experience because of the way that we, the team that we had, the way we experienced the team. Um, from, from a neuroscience perspective, it's, it's super cool to think about because when you're training um, athletes, most of the time, the movements, although they might not be executed uh, perfectly, they're relatively automatic, meaning that you don't have to think about it. So for example, think about walking. None of us ever think about walking unless we somehow lose the capacity to walk. Maybe we're, maybe we're intoxicated or we're in an accident or our spinal cord is damaged or something like that. But otherwise, we just get up and we walk. It's automatic. It's like riding a bicycle. You never forget it. And that process is part of a system that is housed in what we call the basal ganglia. And the basal ganglia for a long time has been thought about as being associated with movement because when you develop something called Parkinson's disease, um, the, the neurons in the basal ganglia become degenerative and people lose that capacity for automatic movement. So now they have to think about walking, think about talking, riding a bicycle and so forth. And so in sport, that movement is automatic. So whether it's running a route, catching a ball, pushing a block, skating, for me it was skating. Most people, like I can skate in a half coma now because I've been skating since I was six years old. Um, but then when you add on top of that, uh, some really new science that's coming out and some of the stuff that I've actually published, I've, I've published um, a, a really cool piece with my ex-wife on this. She was really interested in it where if you ask people to psychologically, we, in, the, in neuroscience, we can't really do physical suffering uh, in the way that we can on the athletic field for ethical reasons, but we can do psychological suffering, which is basically uh, how long or how fast can they solve a problem for some reward. And what we've demonstrated is that, and we've scanned people's brains simultaneously. So I, when I was in Liverpool, England, I ran the imaging center and I had access to two scanners and I could put subject A in one scanner and subject B in the other scanner and I could have them work together to solve a problem and I can make this problem increasingly more difficult. And when individuals solve a problem by themselves, so this, for our problem, it was finding their way to the end of a maze, basically finding the cheese, but that, that equated to some kind of dollar amount. They felt a reward, but the reward was like, uh, you know, like patting yourself on the back. Yeah, it felt good. I did it. I could solve this problem. But when I forced them to work together to solve this maze, um, 
the reward system that was activated was also in the basal ganglia. It activated the same network of brain areas that's associated with automatic movement. And when I read your article, and, and by the way, the way we did this was um, when I was a kid, I, I grew up in Philadelphia and then my family moved to New Jersey. And in New Jersey, uh, there's not a lot anymore, but there used to be some, some farms over there. And so we used to take our old pickup trucks we take them out to the farmlands and we, we play this game where the driver would be blindfolded and the passenger would have to provide instructions and we had to go a certain speed and we would race and, and more times than I can count, we'd end up in the middle of a cow pasture because that's a bad exercise, right? But when we do that in the, in the scanner and we have people work together and we, we emulate that process, when, when I'm blind and you're telling me where to go and we solve the problem, it activates a reward system that's bigger and better than if we were to solve the problem on our own. And that's essentially camaraderie, right? We have just, we have just DIY'd this situation, but we did it not in ourselves, but with another person. And when we, it turns out when we do that, not only is it more rewarding, but then in the future, you want to do that again with that person or those people again. I mean, this is the essence of camaraderie on a team, right? So in some cases, even in like you talked about that militaresque kind of suffering, they end up hating the coach in the process, but together they're united and kind of hating that. But when you turn that on its head and you make it a good bonding process that shows performance enhancement. So you talked about some partner assisted warmups and that sort of thing, um, which I think is fantastic, not only for developing camaraderie and um, accountability and communication, but I believe, and, and I don't have any data, to, I don't think anybody has any data to back this up yet. Um, I believe that that's gonna activate these automatic dopaminergic brain mechanisms that are involved not only in movement because everyone can do a plank but when you then challenge the position and posture which is sort of the hallmark it's one of the things that's been ingrained in me from power athlete from day one when you challenge it with somebody else it becomes a game and if you're now successful right so 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 text if i got in a plank and you challenged my position and posture which would be simple because i'm old and weak right i, like, I would just sit on you yeah, you could just sit on me, right? And, I, and I, I would try my hardest not to collapse. But what happens is you know, or you ought to know, that I'm going to sit on you. And I weigh, what do you weigh, like 130? I weigh a little, <laughs> I'm just, I, I weigh a little bit more than you, maybe. Um, uh, and so you know you're going to have to suffer in the same way and fight in the same way. And that's going to generate this shared reward experience while activating these motor patterns that are automatic in most athletes. And, and that has to be the essence for team building that causes when we see these things like this, this team of scrubs executing plays that are like, how did they do that against a good team? It's, uh, it's got to be something to do with that neural system. And I don't know any data that, that speaks to that. But when I read that article, all of a sudden it like, it, you know, it just put the pieces together for me. Um, so it's, it's actually something I have a student who wants to be a sports psychologist. I've started to uh, have him read and think about, and we're going to try and do some science on it. So, um, that's kind of how I think about it from a neural perspective, sort of the dopamine reward system. But what people forget is that dopamine is also the primary neurotransmitter for movement. And, and if you don't believe that, if you take drugs, uh, uh, that reduce dopamine, you can become, uh, erratic in your movement. So you'll be, you'll get twitches. This is the hallmark of Parkinson's disease. And if you take drugs that induce dopamine too much, you can become catatonic. This is the essence of schizophrenia or overdosing on magic mushrooms. So have you ever heard of a term called purpose tremor? 
Purpose tremor? I have not heard of that term. So this is kind of a, just some research I was run, uh, reading for skill work that's right in line with what you're talking about. So uh, just the, the automatic reaction mechanism, like us just executing walking and seamless skills like you were talking about, but then we start to think about it. Mm-hmm. And we get purpose tremors, so Absolutely. something that prevents us from moving properly. And so just um, that's very interesting. You put a teammate with you. And then that decrease in purpose tremors or that just awareness of posture, position, execution, and empathy. Yeah, yeah. Play that affects movement. This is, a, this is interesting. Like an example of a purpose tremor, if I'm trying to carry just like a cup of coffee yeah. upstairs and you're thinking about it and you start to, you know, shake. Um, so um, – Dude, I also wanted to get into, I don't know if this is a good transition for kind of- Let me just comment on that for a minute, right? That is like, uh, I've never heard the term purpose tremor. Um, We just call it like decrease in automaticity or attentional decrease in automaticity. So so imagine um, uh, when I lived in England, uh, I rode the the train because the idea of driving in England, um, just it just scared the shit out of me. So- uh, Dude, I love it. It's one of my favorite things to do is to drive in the UK. Yeah, but you've had like thousands of concussions, so. Dude, um, my favorite thing, and, and what I request is usually a manual transmission. <laughs> so I like, I, we, we were just in the UK for my buddy's wedding, and uh, we got a diesel manual transmission minivan. And I remember I get in, I look at my wife, and I'm like, you know what, this is perfect. She's like, why? I'm like, because of the manual, I really won't have to think as much about driving, and it'll be more automatic. And, uh, and I, I found that I drive better with a manual because it's actually multiple things that I do better with more. Like if you give me six tasks, I'm probably better than one. And I know when I drove before with an automatic, I was, I literally hit like 10 things. Yeah. Didn't you yeah. Lose, lose a couple side view mirrors? Oh, uh, dude, we, we were driving. I made a turn, lost a mirror and this dude on a bike came up and gave it to me. And, uh, I like fucked up the tire, dude. I did all this stuff. And then I found if I just get a manual, I don't think about it nearly as much. And I actually drive better. So that could be a concussion thing. I don't know. No, no, that's, that's exactly right. That's like um, if you tell somebody to ride a bicycle and think about the process of riding a bicycle, I mean, it induces uh, paralysis anal- or, uh, analysis paralysis, right? So like you think about riding a bicycle, there's a lot of things involved in it. But if you, talk, if you ride alongside of them and talk to them, all of a sudden they're, they're riding away, right? It's, uh, it's basically how I taught my boy to ride a bicycle, right? So you, uh, you'll hop in the saddle, right? You got to pedal, you got to look forward, got to keep your hands on the, and I, I thought to myself, wait a minute, these are all things like he's going to learn. So like put your hands on the, on the steering, on the uh, handlebars and feet on the pedals. And then I ran alongside of him and I talked to him about uh, our dogs and I talked to him about fishing. He's a big fishing guy. And all of a sudden he was riding and he's looking at me like, dad, uh, you're not hanging on anymore. And I was like, yeah, cause you're riding bro. And then like now he just knows how to ride. So I observed and experienced that same thing, John, with the nine-year-olds for sprinting. They were thinking they're holding these pillars and lunges and positions like that, and they're suffering. They're hating it. So what did I do? I just got the old softball and that purple ball we got in the gym. I just started playing catch. So they were holding the positions twice as long. They're not even thinking about it, and they're not complaining, more importantly. But it's just that, like, distraction we're talking about. Makes sense. I mean, I I think if you give people like, uh, you know, it's the age old, like, uh, you know, everybody seems to do better after a drink. I mean, you know, I've I've watched numerous people walk into a bar setting or you go try to talk to some people or a girl and, you know, people are nervous. So I'm like, dude, go get a drink, 
you know, listen to music, relax a little bit, make sure the drink's in your hand, like, go over, like, people just seem to do better, and uh, it's, you know, one of those things, like, um, like, the way I taught my daughters, you know, for swimming, especially how to dive, was I would throw things on the bottom of the pool, and they would have to go get them, and, you know, it was never like, hey, I need you to hold your breath and go under and this, they just went under and got stuff, so I think if uh, you can put them in that context, it tend to be yeah, for sure. And I think that's the same thing is that, sorry, I just had to get a charger from my phone here, or my computer. If you uh, do that with athletes, what you're doing is you're effectively activating the vapor ganglia, and that's changing the thinking about it. So like in a situation like where, um, uh, Tex, you said uh, the pain of the, uh, the planks or the pillars, right? You call them pillars. Um, all of a sudden, now you're in a situation where you've distracted them from this emotional and physical pain because now they ha they're doing something else, right? So the brain, brain is like super powerful, but it can't do everything at once. So like thinking about pain when you're in a, in a situation of play is mutually exclusive, right? Like it, it, now this is independent of like 50 shades of play and pain, right? This is like a different kind of thing. Um, it's hard for people to like experience pain when smiling. They're mutually exclusive. So now if you're in a team and you're catching, you're playing catch, you're doing these sorts of things, making it a game, you're activating this dopaminergic reward pathway, which downplays the emotional and physical pain. Um, it, it's a great way. If you, if you can train your kids to like laugh off boo-boos and stuff like that, all of a sudden their pain threshold will change because their brain is now changed to think about the way the dopamine, or they, they don't actually think about the way the dopamine, their brain is using dopamine in a different way, which is almost like a natural pain killer. And that's true of psychological pain or physical pain because those are housed in the same part of the brain. So uh, part of the CrossFit football seminar, uh, we, we, have to, we have to just break people off and it, it comes during pillars. Because what we see is we treat them like a team. And during these pillars, we make them hold them for however long you know it's up yeah, to the yeah and then it's that opportunity to break them off and people disappear so they do one of two things they just disappear up their own ass uh, or they quit or the third thing is they are focusing on the team so they don't want to be the one responsible for the group failing they they get loud they get rambunctious they're like the, the let's go the, they're the leaders of the group yeah and we identify that we don't want you if we're training athletes we don't want you to disappear up your own pain cave right we don't want to train you to quit during suffering we want you to be cognizant aware of your surroundings and control your response to stress so does does that is there science behind that just kind of being aware and controlling your posture position when you're in an excruciating pain you're you're physically failing yeah yeah i mean it, it's uh so so pain is a really cool thing right um i, I mean Right, I think it's super cool. It's super fun to think about. And so one of the things that I've been thinking about lately is sort of this idea of self-talk. There's a lot of sports psychology research on self-talk. And so, you know, you hear these guys at the CrossFit, CrossFit football seminar or even training, you know, like you're doing like – the other day I had to do some like max rep back squats or some shit, and it was stupid. Like you end up doing like 30 reps and you're burning. But, yeah, you want to keep going because – you know that the guy on the other side of wherever did 31, so you want to do 32, you know what I mean? And so you start like, ah, oh, come on. And it's interesting when we yell at ourselves, right? Our brain hears that as almost being somebody else. And that's interesting because that's the same thing as somebody next to you saying like, come on, come on, like do it for the team. Now, the, the, where it 
differentiates is when it actually is somebody else, right? And so self-talk can only go so far. But now if I'm saying like, come on, come on, come on. Now Tex is like, yeah, yeah, come on, come on. John's going to hop on board because it's like, yeah, all right, we're, we're all in this together. These people are counting on me. In less, now, there are individual differences. There are just some people that quit. I saw it in the grid league. Um, uh, they, they were late. I, didn't, I, was like kind of a, I was kind of an asshole of a coach. Like, we had very limited time to practice. We had four days before our first match to all work together. And these kids went to the supermarket and showed up for the bus for practice and they were two minutes late, but that meant we got to the practice area two minutes late, which then, you know, with a couple minute warm up, whatever. So I punished them and I made them do some, uh, I made them, I taxed their grip and their, their trunk, right? Because everybody complains about trunk and uh, grip. So I made them hang from a pull-up bar in an L-sit. And I was like, listen, you're all going to hang here for two full minutes, right? Now, two full minutes of hanging in L-sit. I feel like shouldn't be that challenging. You'd be surprised how many people got, uh, and they quit. And what it did was it, it fired up the rest of the team, right? The rest of the team now was like, no, get back up. We all have to do this. Like we need to get to practice. So I think that that pain thing is a motivator for most people, even if it's, but I also think that there's something about elite level athletes where pain is a motivator. And then it, it's a, it's also, I think a filter for getting rid of the people who are not going to be elite level athletes. I mean, I think that uh, if you've played any kind of sport that requires any kind of, uh, I like your term, condo conditioning um, or any kind of strength work or any kind of like physical pain, right? So like not chest necessarily, uh, unless that's like a psychological pain. I think that's a really good filter for the people who are going to succeed or not. Their capacity, not it's not just pain tolerance. It's their capacity to psychologically do something with the pain, right? To, to get rid of it. To, and that can be, I don't, I don't think we had a, we had a teammate um, who uh, was a really good athlete, but lost the essence of camaraderie because in the locker room, when we're trying to get warmed up and we're trying to think about it, he's got his big, you know, um, uh, I forget, I don't know what they're called because I don't, I don't wear that shit. The big, you know, fat headphones that look really cool. And he's in the zone. He's got this mean mug on and, you know, he's like, giving people dirty looks and he's a great athlete and everyone knows he's a great athlete. But then when it comes time to be part of the team, he, he kind of lost it, right? He lost it and he ended up breaking down. And I don't know if that's the reason, but yes, I think pain is, is a great filter for athletics. I, and I, you know, again, being a disciple of power athlete, I use these principles on my kids all or my, my boy all the time because and the neighbors think I'm crazy, but I do things like I make him hang from the pull-up bar. He can, now he can actually do six strict pull-ups, right? He's going to be six in six days. Six strict, they're ugly as fuck. They look like CrossFit pull-ups without the kit, but he can do six strict pull-ups. But he can also hang on that bar pretty much indefinitely. Now, that may be also because he's in gymnastics and he's got to hang on to things. But uh, not to one-up you, not to one-up you, but my daughter uh, has <laughs> six strict pull-ups that are fucking on the money. And my other daughter only has two, but since they were babies, we have this thing where uh, they hold onto my fingers and we used to walk around the house for time. And uh, we used to set what I call world records. So we used to go and see, <laughs> and uh, like I pulled it out. Like they, like I remember <laughs> until they were about two years old. And then one day they were like, we don't want to be, you know, we're not here for your amusement anymore. So I like stopped it. And then I pulled it out the other day and I was like, you guys want to go for world records? Dude, I got the, they were literally holding on L-sits as we're walking around that house. And I got to the point, like now they weigh like 40 some pounds. Yeah. 
tired and I like had to set them down and they were like, we're not done yet. I'm like, well, I'm fucking tired. That's <laughs> so like, when you guys were like 15 pounds, it was easy. But uh, yeah, no, my, my daughter, I mean, I, she, they both go to gymnastics. My one little girl, Kelly, has like six strict pull-ups. who can do three L-sit pull-ups. And, That's like, amazing. But they also, yeah. I don't know if the boy does this, they come home every day and they put on their gymnastics outfit and they practice for like five or 10 minutes and then they do something else and they do these little five or 10 minute practices from about four o'clock to about six, seven o'clock at night. Yeah. And, but to them it's play, right? This is the thing I tell all of my students, right? So all my students are, you know, colleges and they're like, Oh, I got to get done in four years. And I'm always saying like, why, like, why, what are you going to do? You rush to get a degree in four years and you've got 80 years to do whatever the fuck you want. Take your time and have some fun and play. And that's what I do exactly with Spencer. He comes home, he'll sprint to me with good mechanics because we don't tolerate bad mechanics in this house. So he'll sprint to me and all the kids are like, what are you doing with your arms? And he's like, cheek to cheek. And I'm like, attaboy, like you swing it. And then he'll run in the backyard. He, I have a 12 foot rope in my backyard. So he's the only kid in the hood who can climb it twice and he does it legless. And um, it's just great, right? It's great. For him, it's just play. And like, he'll sit on there and sing a song, like hanging from the rope. And I'm like, I play with him. And it's again, it's a situation for us as dads where that camaraderie is super important because we're making what other kids see as painful and like distasteful and downright like abusive. I mean, nowadays, physical education for kids is like, oh, like, how can I get out of gym? That's what I hear all the time. Like, how can I get out of the gym? Like, oh, I'll. I'll forget my shoes or I'll uh, forget my gym shorts or, oh, I think I could get a doctor's note. Oh my gosh. Like, fuck you, fat ass. Like my kid will never have those excuses, right? Because he sees physical education and physical movement as play because he and I do it together. So like we have handstand contests in my house. Who can hold a handstand? Because he wants to, his only goal in life right now is to walk on his hands because when he grows up, he wants to be a ninja. And he thinks that ninjas walk on their hands. Like, I mean, I'm like, okay, that seems reasonable, you know? And so if we can foster that kind of, uh, like, mentality in athletes, obviously, if you're in the NFL, like, there's going to be some playtime and some work time. Like, that's a real sport. In the grid league, which isn't quite established as a real sport yet, you have to make it fun. You have to make it play. Not to mention that you've got men and women working together, which adds a completely different dynamic when we talk about things like camaraderie and pain tolerance. I mean, you know, on the girl side, you might have, uh, you might have, uh, in, in, in high level athletics, you might have a homosexual female that maybe makes the other females feel weird and that messes the camaraderie up. Or you might have one girl who just is like afraid to rip her hands, you know, and on the guy side, you might have similar things like that. And then combining the two totally different. Um, yeah, so no, I, yeah, we could go back and forth, I'm sure, with kids' stories, but I apply all the power athlete principles to my kids, and the neighborhood thinks I'm crazy. But he pushes the prowler, too. He, that's his really one of his favorite things to do is push the prowler. So question about self, self-talk. And yeah, I self-talk. And with visualization as well. So real versus created stimulus, is it the same on our central nervous system? Can you give me an example of text? Uh, the example I want to introduce is is shadow boxing and uh, dry fire for shooting. So envisioning um, envisioning that stressful situation, but then it's you're calm and you're executing it because it's not the real stress. It's not the real stressor. Absolutely. So th- this is one of the most interesting and and maybe exciting things in neuroscience that apply to athletics. There's a system in the brain 
and I'm using, I know that the audience will be able to see this, but I'm using air quotes here, system, because it applies throughout most of the brain mechanisms called the mirror neuron system. So mirror like you look at yourself. And what this mirror neuron system does is really, uh, uh, really super interesting. It allows us to emulate behavior of other individuals in our mind without actually even executing them. And then when we execute high level, uh, so, so you said like a, a visualization, right? So if I close my eyes and I visualize, um, I, I don't know, walking on my hands, let's say, right? I visualize it. I'm not going to visualize myself falling and, and breaking at the midline and, you know, breaking my elbows and stuff like that. I, I if I do it right, I'm going to visualize myself executing that movement as perfectly as possible. I'm on a hollow body. My toes are going to be pointed. My glutes are going to be squeezed. Shoulders are going to be locked. Elbows under the shoulders, wrists under the elbows. And what that does is it activates my brain areas as if I was actually executing that movement. It's an absolutely phenomenal new system, right? So now there's been studies showing that uh, if you take a group of untrained individuals and you have them visualize moving perfectly, when they're then given the opportunity to execute the movement, they move more efficaciously and more efficiently than if they had never been trained how to move it. Now, they, now they're just visualizing, right? And they get better simply by visualizing, by activating this mirror neuron system. Yeah, so uh, just kind of in uh, reading, I'm kind of working on some psychology stuff. Visualization was a big part of it, and then I found the history of shadow boxing. Okay. And so I have a, I guess, a trivia question for John, and don't Google it over there. Uh, <laughs> he just pulled up Google. I saw his face. No. Uh, who invented shadow boxing? So this uh, I, think, was, I think it was Muhammad Ali. No, way, way it was a heavyweight, but it was way, way before Muhammad Ali. Uh, turn, turn of the century. Ooh, um, it's a, it's a true, true trivia uh, question. Oh, was it a um, was it an Irish guy? Uh, possibly. Well, uh, hold on, hold on. It was it. Um, hold on, let me Google. <laughs> Jack Dempsey. Was it Jack Dempsey? Nope. So it was a guy, J Gen Gentleman Jim, Gentleman Jim Corbett. So Gentleman Jim Corbett, C-O-R-B-E-T-T. -T. So he was a heavyweight uh, right about the turn of the century, nicknamed Gentleman Jim. And um, just in all his interviews afterwards, he just would talk about shadow boxing. And no one knew what the fuck he was talking about. And finally someone brought it up. And then ever since then, it's just been a domino effect and became like the way so it was just a, a, a guy stumbled upon it, what worked for him, a shadow boxing, and then it became turned into like mirror. So you're facing yourself and you can visualize the opponent. So it's kind of um, just a bit of domino effect, but just some guy's approach in boxing way back when. And I mean, now it's becoming a, a science. It's definitely pretty cool stuff. Well, I mean, it's, like, uh, I, I remember when, um, uh, so, then, I mean, this is kind of telling, but uh, I went to go do a shooting thing with some uh, some guys from Naval Special Warfare, and I remember my shooting wasn't as good as what I wanted, especially, like, some of the pistol and the transitions and even, like, some of the rifle stuff. And I remember asking uh, – we've had these guys on the podcast, but one of the guys, and I was like, you know, I uh, – um, you know, I got a 
kids, I got full-time jobs, I got a wife, I have a house, I have all of these, uh, you know, requirements. So like my ability to get to the range and really practice is like super small. And, the you know, and I, one of my buddies who was uh, at sniper school made the point, he said, you know, I, um, after we would literally shoot all day, we would go back into our rooms and we would dry fire. And I was like, what's dry firing? And he explained it to me. He's like, basically what I want you to do is I want you to set up and I want you to work on, you know, like, you know, the break of that. And, you know, even with your rifle, the transitions, he goes, I just get in front of a mirror and like just a few minutes, 10, 15 minutes of dry firing, being able to work on your, you know, pistol draw and how you transition. And I thought I was like, well, shit, if I'm not going to get to the range as often as I want and I need to up my skills, then I need to make sure everything is up to check. So literally I would put on my pistol rig. Um, and before I went to bed for like, you know, 10, 15 minutes, I would dry fire. And then it got to the point where I would do it three times a day. Um, just working on like, you know, not only, you know, drawing the pistol, putting it on target, pulling the trigger, racking the slide, putting it back, just the draws and then being able to like, you know, uh, like, you know, like imagine like as you have your rifle basically dropping it in the transitions and then even for the long range stuff, basically at night I would just set up once the kids went to bed on the couch, on the back of the couch, I'd set up with my rifle and just work on the break. And um, in like a couple months time, I ended up going out on a training deal with those same guys and was able to shoot very competitively with the group. And uh, you know, people were like, dude, you practice a lot. And I was like, I don't really shoot that many bullets, but I do practice quite a bit. And I started thinking about like, you know, the idea of perfect practice. So the idea that, you know, it's not only just practice makes perfect, the idea of perfect practice and being able to work on these things. And I think the shadow boxing is the same thing. You know, I mean, that's something that they've taught in boxing for years. I mean, the idea of like putting a rope on the ring and then basically being able to duck under the rope and do different things. It's just more about not only moving yourself in space, but that ability to move within relationship to another thing. And I think most shadow boxing I mean, they used to do it with shadows, but became in a mirror so that you could watch not only how you were moving and how you were breaking, and so then you get some visual representation. So and yeah. it's just an opportunity to throw, throw punches because you think if the only time you ever throw a punch, because 90% of boxing is done uh, not against an opponent. You got to think of like, you know, the speed bag. You got to think about the, the mitts. I mean, all these other different tools. I mean, when you look at the amount of actual physical sparring that guys do, I mean, I bet you it's, you know, and I'd have to look at the numbers on the pros, but I mean, it might be 80-20, it might even be 90-10, because guys know that, you know, they can't take that much punishment in training or they'll never get to the fight. So, And, yeah, Steve, you can probably speak to this as well. In that kind of uh, skill work and shadow, shadow boxing research, I stumbled upon some, some rat studies, and they talked about just gradually progressing in the stress, and their example was uh, they would – have a low stress, just the cheese at the end of the maze, and then gradually increase, like, uh, I guess it was heat they were using to sp speed it up. So they had that control group, then they had the one group, which was gradually increasing, and then they had the, the, uh, the group where they just freaking turned the fire on. So very high stress, they succeeded maybe, uh, like, uh, I think uh, it was six to ten. So the Moderate stress gradually increasing. They had six times more success than the, the fire just turning on. So when we talk about gradually increasing uh, athletes' ability and, and uh, the quality of, of stress, it's just we have to gradually stress to progress versus just throwing them into the fire. 
Do you have any kind of a, oh, yeah. oh, I, have, I have tons of thoughts about that. And, and also, I mean, we get back to the shadow boxing, the, the mirror boxing actually is better. I mean, the, what it does is it provides visual feedback, right? So now you're able to update. So, so, I mean, professional boxers don't throw bad bunches, right? But they can update that they can tweak the minor things in their punches to make them even more efficient. Now, somebody who's just learning how to box, those a bunch of shitty punches. And now if they have somebody telling them or coaching them, or they know what a good punch looks like, they can update it. And this again is activating this mirror neuron system, which is, uh, sorry about that guys, which is, uh, uh, fantastically awesome at changing our behavior. And when you do it in the mirror, what it, it would be tantamount to watching film of somebody box. So if I watch somebody box, I can watch them and watch them and watch them and watch them. And all of the sort of colloquial like anecdotes would say, well, if you watch somebody do something, you're not going to be able to learn how to do it. But nothing can be further from the truth. When you watch somebody do something, and boxing is a little bit more complex. Let's say running. When you watch somebody run, when you watch the best people on the planet run and you watch them we watch for the right things and you watch them a lot, your brain actually activates as if you're running like that person and you get better, right? Um, well, it's, it, uh, Steve, it's based off the idea that, uh, um, and this isn't true for everybody uh, because I've, I've, I mean, we've, we've had the rare opportunity of traveling the world, teaching people how to train and lift and do different things. And what's been interesting to me is that there's, you know, there's different types of learners. There's people that are visual learners or other people that are auditory learners. And there's people that you literally, you know, tactile type learning for me personally, if you can show me somebody or you can show me somebody doing it like in that, uh, you know, I've told the story probably way too many times, but uh, when I came in the NFL, I was very fortunate. I started as a rookie, got hurt. And, um, but when, uh, we were watching film and they were getting me ready to go start. Uh, I remember we were watching film and I asked my coach, I'm like, do you have any guys who are not six, eight, 330 pound black dudes? And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, do you have any like six foot five, 300 pound white dudes? Like people that are similar to me. Cause you're showing me Trey Thomas and dude, Trey's a beast. Like I need some, like maybe dudes similar to me. And so my coach was like, Oh yeah, it makes sense. And he found me like Jim Lachey and the Gary Zimmerman and, uh, you know, Tunch Jilkin and dudes that were similar to me. And I remember watching them being like, oh, well, that worked for them. I can do that. And I used to joke that like I can uh, like monkey see monkey do. If you can show me, I can mimic. And, uh, you know, and so that worked very, very well for me. But yet I remember my coach doing that same thing with other people and they couldn't connect the dots. And I always wonder if it's um, athleticism or different things, but or maybe people just aren't globally aware. Like uh, yesterday, for example, I've been going down to this uh, this PT guy to work on my shoulder. As you guys know, I have terrible range of motion in my shoulder, and so I've been going to this PT every week to have him work on it. And um, you know, it, but that's a different story. And so he was over there, like in between bouts of just assaulting me with this fucking, you know, uh, with this power drill in my shoulder to try to break up tissue. He was over there trying to teach a guy to do a burpee. And uh, I like finally stopped him. I'm like, first of all, I can't watch this anymore. And, and like, let me try. And literally I demoed the burpee, took the guy through it three or four times. And the guy physically could not do it. And I realized like the idea of like putting your toes forward, replacing your hands and your feet and doing all these different movements. Some things just are kind of outside of people's grasp. And it's merely because they haven't been taught the basics. Um, that's another thing when you think about like, you know, and Tex and I have seen this and we've taught this at our seminars. We teach 
everything off of the basic universal athletic position because it's the foundation of what we do. But we can't ask you to do complex things until you learn the basics. And so, like, even with boxing, I mean, just learning how to, like, you know, judge distance and how to throw and just basically teaching the hands and how people throw at judging distances. Remember to keep your hands up, how you want to blade your body, what foot you're going to step with, what does your footwork look like. I mean, I remember standing there and throwing punches after punches before we ever moved our feet. And then the ability to cut somebody off in the ring and how you kind of, you know, position and kind of put your body and how you corner them and cut people off. I mean, all that is taught through repetition, but it's taught in steps. And I, I think, um, so especially something like running, I mean, we teach it from the ground up. I mean, hey, uh, or I'm sorry, from the ground down, from the top down, we just want to work on arm swing and then we kind of put all these different pieces together. But uh, I think what I've at least noticed is usually the more gifted athlete is the person that could pick things up visually faster. Would you, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think, um, I think there's something that's to be said about how people learn, but I think there's also something to be said about um, this idea of kinesthetic intelligence, right? So, so some of us have a guy by the name of a guy, a famous psychologist by the name of Howard Gardner came up with this idea of the multiple intelligence theory. So rather than just having math and language, you would have things like self-awareness, language, nature, and one of them was kinesthetic intelligence. And these would be represented by things like gymnasts or uh, professional uh, athletes, um, uh, uh, Cirque du Soleil, type of people, right? I mean, people who can move their bodies through space and was now somebody with that kind of kinesthetic intelligence is going to be much more able cognitively and physically to pick that stuff up, right? To watch it, see the movement and translate in the same way, like a math genius is able to see letters and numbers and say, Oh, X equals two, right? Um, in the same way they can put that together in an execution of movement. Some people are just more gifted in that way. But I also think, um, you know, what you guys do at Power Athlete uh, uh, is you guys teach the universal athletic position. But as far as I can tell, and, and I haven't, I, I, my, I mean, the amount of interaction I have with elite level strength and conditioning coaches is, is basically spans the lifespan of this podcast, right? So I don't know all the big guys. I didn't have great strength and conditioning coaches growing up. I, I just happened to have a really reasonably fit and strong ex-Marine dad who told me that I have to be able to pick heavy shit up or I'm a pussy, right? And so like, I, think, I don't think people know that. I walk across campus and I see thousands of students who have navicular drop, they're, particularly women because of high heels maybe, but their ankles drop, their knees almost bang together. And, and like, how, where do you start? Like, do you start with like, like toe crunches to get to that point? Like, so like when we say like we start with the basics and build up, I think, uh, I think for the people who come to your seminar, they may be doing what, what uh, uh, that rat study was suggesting is ineffective. So, so if, I, if I just started, say, CrossFit, or I just started weightlifting, or I just started something, and I come to a power athlete, which is, in my mind, a high-level CrossFit football cert, rather, is a high-level cert. For, for you guys, it's like a walk in the park, dummy shit, right? But it's a high level for the average run-of-the-mill person who has no athletic background. And so now they're kind of jumping into this, this, uh, this idea that, uh, like the text was saying, the rats, if we just turn the fire up to 10, they, they don't get it. It's just gonna, they're not gonna make the progress that they think they should be seeing. We see this all the time in sports, right? So like 
I want a big back squat. So I'm just going to like keep, you know, I'm not going to learn how to squat. I'm not going to, you know, uh, put my toes forward. I'm not going to, I'm going to worry more about getting depth than I am about getting depth at a good position and posture. I mean, this is something that, you know, Tex and Luke and you have preached to, to me and all the power athlete people across the years is which is like, like, hold the standard, but hold the standard with good posture and position. And I think that has to be played out. And I think text that, that rad article speaks exactly to that, right? Which is uh, small approximations towards the goal are going to produce the most efficient and uh, best results, probably the quickest, even though they seem like the slowest. I mean, this is the hallmark of adaptation adaptive response and training, but how, how that plays out is probably relevant to each individual person's response to training. So, so I, I wouldn't say that I have a great kinesthetic awareness cause I'm not very good at walking on my hands. I'm not very good on the barbell and stuff like that, but like I'm probably better than some of the other dads in the neighborhood who like get a sore wrist when they throw the football for like 10 minutes. Right. So like I probably am a little better than them, but not nearly as good as you guys. And so there's got to be variation around that norm, right? And so I think that's what's going to predict how people respond uh, to these types of training. Now, for the, John, your example, you're the kind of person who can, you know, you need to see someone who looks like you, walks like you, uh, uh, you know, is your size. And then you say, oh, if he can do it, I can do it. I mean, this is essentially what we try to train little kids with, right? Like, look, here's another little kid who can do it. Like, don't say quit, right? I do this in my neighborhood all the time. There's a girl across the street who could be my kid's twin. And I always say, um, she is, she's the only girl in the neighborhoods, all boys. I'm a poor thing, right? And her, her poor father, right? So only girl in the neighborhood. She wants to come out and play football, but the boys just run all over her. And she keeps saying like, well, I can't do it because of this, that, that thing. And her mom, who's a stay-at-home mom and I are always out there and we're like, she looks just like Spencer, but she's got a vagina. Like she's a little girl. They're the same person basically. And I'm like, look, Spencer can do it. There's nothing special about him. So like, get her out there and do it. And then she watches what Spencer does and tries to do what he does. I think it's the same thing, but I think some people are more attuned to that than maybe learning through other ways. And that's just individual variation in, in sort of athletic ability and kinesthetic awareness. Well, I mean, we, you know, I, I do that for my girls. Uh, they, they go to gymnastics twice a week and I try to get them there half an hour early and then we go watch the older girls in the gym because uh, I think it's important for them to kind of see the evolution of it. Whereas my one daughter is like intent upon watching them and seeing what all the other girls, my other daughter is more interested in their outfits. Oh my God, look at her Leo. And I'm like, and where my other daughter is like amazed that like they're on the balance beam and can I do that? My other daughter's more interested in the outfit, which I think is hysterical. Uh, but you know, and then when they go in, like the, the one that was hugely influential for them, which seems so funny to me because we go see gymnastics at their, at their place was watching on the Olympics and seeing those girls on the world stage. So we Tebowed the Olympics, uh, the, the gymnastics and, uh, we watch it like at least once a week, like on a Saturday or Sunday, we usually have to go back and watch it. And they like put on their leotards and like, uh, like it's hilarious. They like come in the room and they like do all their stuff. And I like got to hold up little scorecards for them. And, um, you know, and then they go outside, they bounce on the trampoline and like, it's, it's pretty interesting, like their little routine and like the, the things that are important to them. Like my one daughter all of a sudden came out and she was wearing like a jacket. I'm like, why is that? She's like, well, the other girls, when they walk out there, they have on jackets. And I'm like, oh, you mean warm ups? And she was like, yeah, I need some warm ups. And I was like, 
like the things that they notice is so interesting. And I think as parents, we don't even realize the things that we're doing are so influential on their kids. Like, um, you know, the little, like the girls know that I go to, go to the gym every day and in the morning. And on Saturdays, uh, if they are up, I will take them with me. And, um, you know, we come to the gym and, you know, they got to do a little workout. They got to do all this. And I think like seeing that happen, I mean, it's uh, like, I didn't understand the value of it until recently, but there's something to be said about having weights in your garage and making it that accessible because it's kind of hard to be able to like load the kids up and take them over. Like, even though we hear power athletes on a gym open to the public, but like the kids come over and it's something different opposed from like, Oh, mommy and daddy have something in the garage and we go in there and play when they're in there working out too. And they like see it. And I remember Kelly Starrett told me that a long time ago. He's like, you know, uh, Glassman hit it out the park about convert your garage into a gym and fitness will never be far and it'll become something within the family. And, um, uh, you know, I, I started really seeing the magic of that recently, especially with my own kids and like what they do. I mean, we have, you know, pretty much everything available to them. The, the other funny observation I made is uh, my little boy is six months old and guess what his favorite toys are? What's that? Trucks. <laughs> toy trucks. Literally, he has two toy trucks. He's a little one and a big one. And I'll put things out for him and he will go over to the trucks all the time. If we're there, like he's like doing anything, I like, you know, like uh, I have a whole little deal, but he literally is obsessed with trucks. Apple and, like, doesn't and, fall and, like, it, it's, it's hilarious to the point where like, if we were like, we, we were outside and uh, one of the vampires pulled up and like, you know, like the vampires are the kids that uh, work with me in the car stuff. Um, and like their cars are all loud diesels, big exhaust, real loud. And all of a sudden he like saw it and like his eyes lit up and he looked over and the look on his face was like so excited to see like a big lifted truck with exhaust and it was like loud and aggressive. The look on that kid's face, I'm like, you can't teach this stuff. It's ingrained. I'm like trucks loud, like things like it just, it's inherent within kids. And I started thinking about Playtech. I'm like, you know what? Like maybe this stuff isn't nurture. You know, maybe it is within nature that like something is ingrained in us when you like, you see these things. So yeah, definitely trucks. I'm glad he wasn't reaching for a Barbie. I was like, Ooh, thank God on that one. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. My boy's the same way about motorcycles and trucks too. He, we've got, I got eight bikes. I've got a couple back in my room there. I'm working on an antique dirt bike and uh, he loves it. He gets in and gets greasy and stuff. But one of the things that I, my, my boy does the same thing. He, he watches, he's really into Ninja Warrior and he's really into uh, parkour. And um, awesome. like, uh, yeah. And, and I don't, I don't know anything about parkour except you like bounce off walls and shit. So what I've started to do and what he really likes to do and what I think, is there a parkour place around here? There's a Ninja Warrior slash parkour place about 10 minutes from my house, but it's sketch as hell. It, like, he was there one time, and I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, and then I read the reviews online, and it was like, my kid broke his arm. My kid broke his knee. I was like, fuck that. So I'm going to build a pegboard out back, and he's got boxes. And he, I, uh, I put some slack lines and some climbing zip lines in my front yard and stuff. So, like, I just try to make his life like a big playground, right? And what I also do is I videotape it because what they can learn from watching themselves is amazing. Spencer will watch himself like when he was climbing the rope and I was saying to him, I was like, dude, you got to use your legs, got to use your legs. And he's like, that makes no sense to me, dad. Why would I use my legs? It's a rope. And then I showed him the video and he was like, oh, now he just, now I can go up with his legs. It's amazing. And so like when, and, and the thing that's also just recently, some of this new data has come out 
about movement freestyle, which I guess is like what parkour is. It's so good for the brain. Um, people who engage in uh, freestyle like movement. So not say, say like, um, uh, like freestyle dancing, uh, like parkour break dancing, as opposed to say choreographed dancing. Break dance fighting. Like, like, yeah, 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 right. So it actually does things to the brain that helps delay the onset of dementia. It activates proteins in the brain that like almost immunize neurons from the development of dementia. And if you start this as a kid, like this is fantastic, right? And so these are the kinds of things that, that I've been working on too. I, I think, I think, you know, and it all comes back to that article, I think on camaraderie, like this is how this, this, we got this, this little podcast going here is that it's all about teamwork and I'm sure your kids, you don't, you don't maybe realize it, but you're, you're the coach, right? You're, you're the model, the role model. And, um, you know, we all know about the data that like little kids that are born to parents with a limp end up walking with a limp, even though they have no congenital disease that causes them to limp. And so movement is the same way. Um, uh, if you move in a bad way, if you sit all day, if you run, fun, we have a kid in the neighborhood, we have a, a dad in the neighborhood who has um, probably negative athletic talent. Um, and he, I, I mean, it's, it's horrendous. And his kids run just like him. And like, as much as we try and fix it, we can't. And it's like you said, it's, there's a little bit of nurture in there, but nature goes a long way. I mean, genes are around for a reason, right? They're around because they were successful. And I mean, John, your genes were successful. You are a high-level athlete. You're super smart. You run your own businesses. Tex, you're super handsome, right? Um, <laughs> and you're pretty gentle, right? So like these things are they're, they're here for a reason. And and the, it's not you know we we talk about like your kid likes trucks. Well, you have to think about you like trucks because there's genes that affect your psychology that maybe there's no gene for truck loving, right? I mean, I live in the South and I feel pretty confident about saying that, but like there are genes for liking things like mechanical systems and whether that's trucks, which he's being exposed to, or if you live by an airfield, it might be airplanes or it might be, it's probably a, a gene for some kind of love of systems and mechanical systems, which men inherently are much better at than women anyway. And I know you might get a lot of flack for that, but the data are, are uncompromising on that. So yeah, it's super cool. It's, it's ah, man, you, you know what? Your little boy's gonna make you broke because you're gonna have to buy all kinds of trucks and stuff. Uh, dude, don't worry. I've already started working on his car from when he turns 16. So I, I told my wife uh, my goal was because uh, I, I, I can't, like, I don't get things done very quickly because uh, I have too much. So if I started working on their cars now, then uh, I could effectively have everything done by the time they're 16. So I'm, uh, uh, I got three kids. So I, I basically uh, have an 86 K5 Blazer that I put a 12 valve Cummings and MB4500 in. Uh, I got a, a K30 single cap pickup. Uh, that we did uh, an LS, uh, L92 LS motor in, and then I got this 69 Blazer. So I've already like, got their cars and started working on them. And, uh, and I'm, I, they'll be, by the time they're 16 years old, they'll have their, their cars already finished, ready to go. So I figure the one contribution I can make is I'm going to start working on their vehicles now because, uh, I mean, Anybody can go out and buy something, but I always remember there was a couple kids I went to school with that like had some like bitching like trucks where you were even cars where they were like I was like dude that's awesome They're like oh yeah dude my dad totally built this thing I was like that's fucking awesome like instead of just going and buying something so I would like to have something that when my daughters or my son pull up or turn sixteen that they get out and people would be like 
what the fuck did you get that? Be like, oh, my dad built this thing years ago for me. I'll be like, oh, that's kind of cool. So monster trucks, pretty much. Oh, yeah, and one of a kind, right? I mean, no one else is going to have that. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, uh, I, I remember uh, my, one, one of my, my roommate in college, his, uh, his wife's dad built custom cars, and when she was 16, he had a 59 Caddy Coupe DeVille convertible, you know, the coolest car on the planet that made less than 800, that was like lipstick, red, white interior, and he said that they were in high school, and he was like 16 years old, and he saw this blonde girl pull up in this 59 Caddy, and he's like, basically, I knew that was going to be my wife, and they ended up being, they're still married. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, how cool is that? That like, that's the car that she drove when she was 16. I mean, one day when she turned. But uh, no, I'd like to, you know, especially out here, you know, where it's a Prius or a Land Rover or Mercedes. I want my daughters to have really obnoxious diesel trucks with like a thousand foot pounds of torque, you know. So they, they can, they can hear from like a mile away. Oh, dude, you see this 12 valve we've been building. I don't know if you guys are into Cummins Motors, but like as I've got, like I've always been fascinated by motors. But uh, the straight six Cummins motor is by far one of the coolest motors ever invented. It makes monster torque. It's all low RPM. And so we've been working on this 12 valve motor for my blazer and it'll, uh, it'll be probably like 500 horsepower, maybe about a thousand, 1100 foot pounds of torque, which basically means it can like drive through a wall and then keep going and hopefully get about 18 to 20 miles to the gallon. So it'll be pretty interesting. So we've been working on that. So. So you're an anomaly in California. So you shoot guns, drive big trucks. Like, do your neighbors hate you? Yeah, well, it's pretty funny. My neighbor, uh, when we moved, uh, was like, you know, uh, he's like, I'm sad you're moving. He's like, I'm not sad about you starting up your diesel truck at 5.50 every morning to go to the gym. And I'm like, were they allowed, you know, because I drive, what, I have a Duramax. Uh, I have, a, a, you know, a Cummins and, you know, different stuff. And so... Everything I drive is diesel. The only gasser car we have is my wife's truck. And uh, everything I have is like, chum, 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 chum. so yeah, and I'm into guns. So, I mean, I like to shoot stuff and uh, something we work on, but and I'm into kids and lifting weights. So pretty much on Newport Beach stuff. So maybe one day we'll have a big farm where we can go do this stuff. Yeah, that's the dream, right? That, that um, is the Tex, do we have more science to talk about? Sorry, we got kind of off on like kids and trucks and stuff. I mean, I, I don't have any more questions, but is there anything that, what are you working on right now? What's your project in class? What do you got all your interns just fucking doing all the work for you? Uh, actually, I do have a kid who's going to start working on the effects of that freestyle dance. He, uh, he's a really cool kid. He actually, he, he did a presentation in class the other day while he, he stood on his head and did breakdance moves while presenting on the effects of freestyle dance on the brain. Uh, it was really impressive. Um, he's going to do that. And then I'm continuing to do some research on attractiveness, uh, mainly because it's super easy and students find it kind of fun. Um, I've, I've moved away from doing research on uh, things like schizophrenia and autism because it's just, it's hard to come by. Uh, it's hard to come by uh, patients. But my, my big thing next is a week from today, this time I'll have uh, done my first TED talk. So I'm giving a TED talk in Atlanta. Nice. On uh, on why why psychology's um, my psychology's fucked up, um, and uh, so yeah, so it'll be you know 15 minutes of fame, literally 15 minutes is about a TED talk. So so that should be pretty exciting. I've been practicing for that. I, in fact, I have a coach for that. I have to meet with him for two and a half hours tomorrow to go over delivery and you know when to pause and how to pause. You know, because as a lecturer, you just uh, I take it for granted. I just know this stuff. I've I've been doing this for. 
a long time, better part of decade and a half, two decades. So I just go in and, you know, like you, you ask me questions, I just know how the brain works. I can just do it. But delivering it to an audience that needs to understand it in a way that is relatively elementary and make points that are take home points uh, is a little bit different than say teaching a 4,000 level neuroscience class to a bunch of students who have had stuff before that. So um, he's coaching me on that. And then I've never had a coach on public speaking and uh, he's a really, he's a good guy. He's a cool guy. So he's going to come up and that's been a, that's been, you know, one of those things that um, uh, just happens in life. And I never thought I would need a public speaking coach because I'm a professor. And yet now I realize that it's probably one of the things I needed first and probably should have had as a graduate student who was going to go become a professor at a university because I feel like I've been doing it wrong now. So it's, uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be an interesting The whole conference theme is called together, which I guess, you know, is, you know, touchy feely like Ted likes to be. And uh, they have some dance performances. They got some community stuff. And so I'm going to go in and try and drop some K bombs and have a good time. Did they? You know, uh, uh, when I got into doing the cross of football stuff, um, I actually worked with a, a public speaking guy, a guy named Arthur Joseph, and went and worked with him a little bit. And uh, just the one thing that he imparted to me was uh, take your time. You know, that was something I really had to do. Like, you know, you have this like feeling like I have 45 minutes and I have to get all this information, and you speak so fast. And he's like, you know, if you speak too fast, uh, people don't have the ability to connect with the information. So it's more valuable to say less and give people some dramatic pauses. So as text knows, uh, you know, sometimes when I have, you know, too much information to say, I can kind of go off the rails a little bit, which I've been known to do, but like a big thing with like being able to take pauses, you know, being able to make a prolific statement and then follow that prolific statement up with some form of pause. And on top of it, being able to speak eloquently and not using a, a, a filler words while your brain plays catch up and just being able to close. So, I mean, it was really valuable to me. Um, the only thing that really happened is that just as I started getting into it and I got really excited, uh, we ended up having the twins and my ability to like drive up to LA and go meet with this guy for a couple hours just disappeared. And I was like, I saw the guy like a few times and I remember being like, I'll take all these things. I'm going to go out on the road. I'm going to see how it comes back. But um, he was really good. He worked with like Tony Robbins and Arnold Schwarzenegger and worked with all these really high level people and uh, was pretty amazing. So okay. I think anytime you get some information and they kind of, you know, they always record you, give you feedback. And a lot of times it kind of hurts you. Like, it, like it's stung me where he was like, uh, use the word, uh, like 47 times in three minutes. So I'm like, it's uh, no really joke. My guy has already told me. He's like, uh, "Yeah, so that wasn't funny. That sucked. That's terrible. You talk too fast. Start." And I was like, I "I've been doing this for like twenty years. Like, I know what I'm doing. I'm good at this. Yeah, I'm oh. fucking good at this, fucker. Like, but it's been great. Uh, even my students have mentioned uh, who have had me before. They're like, your style of presentation has changed a bit.' And I was like, "Well, because I've been trained, right? It's and wearing pants now." Yeah, yeah, it's insane. But Instead of just it's, rolling around in spandex, spandex leggings. <laughs> Easy now. You guys, I'll tell you, when y'all are in town, you have to come visit one of my classes. You would love it. Oh, I talk uh, about sex. I'm so, in. Uh, yeah. I'm curious. Well, they, well Tex, Tex, aren't you moving to Iceland? Oh, uh, that's right. So I'm going to get paid $5,000 to marry one of their uh, athletes. I'm going to find the only brunette in the whole country. So, no, they don't have any. Uh, they had a deal where I guess Iceland is struggling for males. 
sales. And so they're offering cash payments for guys that would want to move to Iceland. And I'm like, uh, all you got to do is put a, 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 what was it, a Katrina David's daughter and, uh, and Annie Thor's daughter and all those girls. Just put those girls on the flyer. And yeah. like, you probably get like 100,000 CrossFit dudes showing up being like, is there a gym? We get yeah. to eat some paleo, we got some money, and we get to meet hot Icelandic chicks. Yeah. But here's the thing. Have you guys been to Iceland? No. Okay, so I haven't either, but I taught six Icelandic girls when I was at University of Liverpool. They don't look like Katrin or Annie, in my impression. They're, they're outliers, those girls. Oh, really? Yeah, in my impression. Now, that may have changed because that was almost a decade ago. Um, so maybe the Icelandic CrossFit, you know, hey, this is, take don't, your five, don't ruin this for me, Steve. Hey, take your five grand, go spread those handsome jeans, and then get oh. back here. I'm telling you, uh, uh, the girl that won the CrossFit Games, uh, that, is it Katrina? Katrin, I think. Yeah, dude. Uh, I think that girl probably is one of the most striking people I've ever seen. Yeah. Like her like facial features with like uh, just from like an evolutionary kind of deal. I remember there was a, a book I read a long time ago called Deep Nutrition, and they talk about, uh, you know, you can view somebody's facial features based off of not only like lineage, genetics, diet, all these other key factors, but like the fact that her face is so like head and face is so square and her jaw and her eyes. It's like so striking to me. Every time I see her, I'm like, God, that girl looks like nobody else I've ever seen on this planet. And uh, they talk about like nutrition, uh, you know, obviously being raised in a certain way with nutrition, like the face ends up narrowing opposed from widening. And they talk about nose and bridge. And it was just a pretty fascinating book. And every time I look at that girl, I'm always like, God damn it. That girl is so unique and striking. I mean, I think she's a beautiful girl, but, uh, I'm like, dude, if they look like they're text, get there. I mean, yes. send me pictures. Unfortunately, I'm married with three kids, so I get to live vicariously for you. For you but, uh, well, uh, we, got a, we got an end with Wow Airlines. So, um, Dude, I'm telling you, when, when Kate was booking those trips, she's like, what do you think of this Wow Airline? I'm like, fuck it. What's the worst that can happen to Tex and Luke? They've already been through the worst. Like, like Tex historically has the worst luck with flights. Like, like we'll book Tex and Tex will if like I canceled again. No, we we haven't had a chance to catch up from Euro Euro trip 2016. And dude, it was it was a shit show. Like that's that's a story when Luke and I are on a podcast again together. This was one of the most freaking like ass backwards trips I've ever been on. Uh, in a good way or a bad way? Uh, let's just say I'm a better person for the incidents that occurred. Oh, it's Oktoberfest is a complete shit show. Oh, that's that's a whole different story. But just the the travel alone, this was this was a tough one. Oh, okay. That's that's for a different time. What um, is Wow Airlines? Is that an American based uh, company? No, it's, uh, it's an Icelandic airline. Oh, really? Okay. But you you have to pay to use the bathroom. You have to buy water. There's nothing free about. Yeah. It's, wow. it's bare bones, which is perfect for us because we usually travel with all of our own snacks and drinks, and like we don't depend on the airline. But like. Yeah, uh, Texas, like, dude, they make pay. I'm like, well, that's fine. We don't use the restroom. I couldn't take my daughters on there because they bankrupt me because they go to the bathroom every four minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, what, Wow Airlines not one to complain. We just kid. Um, but uh, Steve, just did. I'm just curious, how did did Ted approach you? How did you? Yeah. Uh, so um, I'm not sure. I just got a call one day, and uh, so Ted has like the big Ted, and then they have like uh, locally organized Ted events. And uh, the, one of the biggest ones, I think it's the biggest one in Georgia, uh, just got word of some of my research and, and called me up and we chat. I didn't even know really what it was about. 
I thought it was just an interviewer. And so um, I get lots of calls to do like radio or TV interviews or whatever. And then uh, she was like, oh, okay, well, I'm calling about this TED conference uh, in Atlanta. So we're, you're now in the running to be selected. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then, so that's just, it was just kind of by chance. You know, just basically being, being a badass. What's, uh, what's it going to take for us to get you to wear a power athlete shirt during it? So, so here's the thing that's happening to me, right? So I, I asked my coach about dress code because uh, I, I, I am content with going in jeans, my cowboy boots. By the way, your new boots are dope and, uh, and a shirt, but I probably should wear something that looks reasonably presentable. Um, and there are no power athlete like uh, performance but, polos, John. Uh, yeah, we, we can get some more performance polos, but I mean, I really wanted to see just Platic in a. Um, you you want to see me without a shirt, John? Come uh, on. I was imagining like head to toe skins with just power athlete down the side, just black spandex with like with a black spandex skull cap. So you just roll in there all spandex. <laughs> like, like one of the like one of the blue men, right? Like with just all black. But, but it's funny, like all these CrossFit dudes have basically like seen the girls rocking booty shorts. Now they all just want to wear spandex pants. I'm like, dude, no, but no dude wants to see another dude in spandex capris. I don't want to. I don't want to spot anybody that's wearing uh, fucking man like, spandex. You know, like like Kenny Leverage. That dude's in phenomenal shape. He looks great. But I really don't. Uh, no. I don't really care about the spandex capris. I'm not, I'm not a big fan. No, no, no. I agree. Well, I I guess that's it, gentlemen. All right, cool. Good talk, Steve. Thank you for making the time for us. I know you're a busy man. Oh, yeah. No, I appreciate it, man. Anytime, anything for you guys. I love being on. I miss being on. My schedule doesn't really allow me to get on. So uh, let me get on more often. All right, dude. We'll make, we'll make it work. All right. Sounds good. Great it, talking it, to you guys. Yeah. Right, if, you got any writing, uh, if you got any kind of a short blog post in your head that can connect what we're talking about with kind of the scientific background, we'll, we'll more than welcome. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, um, I probably won't be doing any of that until after the TED Talk because it's a lot of preparation. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Next week is midterms and the TED Talk, but after that, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know where to find us. All right. Hey, Steve. hey, off the yeah. record, off the record here. Well, then I get, let's uh, end the show if we're going to go off the record. Oh, okay. All right, you remember how we end the show, Steve? No. Bye. Bye, Kelly. Oh, bye. Oh, so that's what I was going to ask you about is Kelly Hensley. Ask and you shall receive, Steve Pladek. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Steve's recent TED Talk will be available for your viewing and audio pleasure soon. And don't forget, Wade's Army's fifth annual Wade's Day campaign has officially kicked off. From now until November 12th, we will be honoring the brave pediatric cancer patients battling neuroblastoma, a tumor derived from immature nerve cells. For 2016, we're embracing their valor and highlighting their nerves of steel. Join the fight against neuroblastoma and help us reach our goal of fundraising $125,000. Enlist today at wadesarmy.org by clicking the Donate Now badge and claim your limited edition Wade's Army uniform. Every army needs a uniform. Until next time, bye!